John chapter 14. We'll be reading just a few verses here. Um, so if you also want to go ahead and flip over to the book of Revelation, John's Revelation in the 21st chapter, um, and you can kind of put your finger there. We'll be making our way to Revelation chapter 21 uh, here in a little while as well. Last Sunday night while we were at Friendship, Brother John preached a wonderful message. and uh, In the message he had remarked upon uh, a verse, just, just kind of uh, passingly, but uh, in the book of Peter, First Peter I believe it is, where uh, we see Peter writing about where righteousness dwells. And I know John uh, has a particular uh, love for that verse, and I've heard him preach on it before. And um, It's a, a wonderful thought of heaven and uh, where righteousness is. And uh, that thought has stirred in my heart throughout the week, and I've uh, not been able to shake it. And uh, today I want to, uh, to, to look to that subject, that subject of heaven. And uh, particularly, I want to tell you about my father's house. And uh, it's a wonderful place, my father's house. It's a tremendous thought if you allow your mind from time to time to consider it. And uh, so we'll take our title today of my father's house from uh, here in the 14th chapter book of John, beginning at verse 1. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And we'll stop there in verse 3. We see Jesus, He is speaking to Peter. He is just foretold that Peter is going to deny Him. And uh, no doubt the hearts of His disciples were very troubled. He has uh, told them of His passion that is upcoming and that He's going to be leaving. And they're worried about these things and wondering, Lord, we've, we've left everything behind to follow You and now You're telling us You're going away. And You've said that Peter's going to deny You and all these things. And their hearts are troubled. And so Jesus, seeing that, He encourages them. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. He said, you believe in God, believe also in Me. And He says that in My Father's house are many mansions. And He's describing to them, in, in, a, in a kind of a play on words here, the essence that there is a place of rest, there is a home for God's children within His house. And I think you can see that pretty plainly in the King James Version, how it translates these words. You see the word house, and then you see the word mansions. And if you were to do a deeper dive on the original Greek, you would see the essence that there is a place of abode, but not just any old place, but a permanent dwelling place for for God's children, a place of rest within the house of God. And what's even more wonderful to consider about that is that we know that from time to time how God has dwelled with His people down through the years. He has dwelled with them in tabernacles and in tents. He now dwells within us. But what we see in heaven is the permanent dwelling place of God in which He invites His children to live with Him for eternity. It's a permanent dwelling place. Heaven is. And what a wonderful thought to think about. It's one that I've thought about a lot this week. I don't recommend anybody ever move again. My, my grandmother asked me this week, she said, uh, she knew just how stressful moving has been for us, and she asked, she said, do you think you'll ever be ready to do this again? And I said, I don't plan on moving again until I move to my mansion. I have no intentions of moving again until I move to my long home up in heaven. 
And we can laugh at that and joke at that, but that is exactly what it is. In fact, in years gone by, people would refer to heaven as their long home. This is our short home. It is a temporary place for us. We are strangers and sojourners. We're pilgrims on a journey. I'm not meant to be here very long. You see, I have an eternal home, a place that I am going. And so when we think about things on the grand scale of eternity, and we know that man's days are three score and ten, and perhaps by reason of strength and blessing, four score, then on the scale of eternity, 70 or 80 years of a typical lifespan is pretty short, isn't it? And so if we were to just look at that short time span, it would be reason for us, just like these disciples, to have our hearts to be very troubled. Yet we know that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And I believe right now, preparations are ongoing for the home and the dwelling place of the people of God. And we are told a little bit about that dwelling place. We are given a a foretaste of that, that there is a place that is being prepared, that where Jesus has gone, we will be also. And that not only so, but He's the one who's coming back to take us there. Isn't that incredible? I want to tell you about my Father's house. Now, before I do, I I want to use some imagery as we do this today and, and the reason why is that's exactly what the Bible does when it tells us about heaven. It uses imagery to tell us about the eternal dwelling place of the saints of God. We're going to look to that in just a second. But before we do, I want to give you a chance for us to kind of take this into account and, and think about this from things we've experienced. I want you to think about some smell that you have in your life and, and some smell that will take you back in a moment to a particular place. Maybe it's a smell of cookies or a smell of syrup. Some smell that gives you some warmth that, that you like. Last night we were at Brother Jeff's house and he was throwing some, uh, some wood on the fire and I said, you must have that Gatlinburg wood. Why? Because I was smelling that wood and that fire and it took me to a pancake house in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And we laugh and we say, well, that's pretty silly. But the point is, is that sometimes we have these things that we see or taste or smell or hear, and they take us somewhere else, don't they? Whenever I smell black pavement or asphalt, I am taken to King's Island. Because when I've been in King's Island on a hot summer day, and I smell that asphalt because it's hot and the sun's beating down on it, I've associated it with a memory. You see how this works? Growing up, we lived next door to Charlie Evans. And every once in a while, I would be in the Evans' home, and Charlie Evans' home had a very distinct smell. And it's one that I will never forget. And every time I smell it, I'll be taken back to Charlie Evans' house. Some of your houses have smells. <laughs> My house probably has a smell. But isn't it interesting that those types of things, we don't notice when it's our place, do we? Why? It's home. And so when I talk to you today about our Father's house, the emphasis that I want us to realize is that for those that know the Lord, it is home. It is home. Hopefully we'll see that here in just a second. Let's turn over to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to have a a, a bit of a a lengthy reading here, um, but we'll try to, um, again, build on this imagery 
that we see here in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. Said, and I saw this is John. He is, is being given this revelation uh, here, and, and he's recording in the 21st chapter near the end of John's revelation. And he tells us what he saw. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and are faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked to me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and to a high mountain. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. The first thing I want you to see about our Father's house is what it looks like. Keep reading with me in verse 10. Verse 11, rather. Having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even a jasper stone clear as crystal. And he had a, and it had a wall great and high, and it had twelve gates, and at the gates were twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east there were three gates, and on the north three gates, and the south three gates, and the west three gates. And all the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he talked with me. He that talked with me had a golden rod to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof, and the city lieth four square. It's a cubic city, perfectly square, that every length and every breadth is the same distance, the same measurements. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Let me stop right there. We don't measure things too often today in furlongs. Let's talk about what this actually meant in this measurement. We're talking about a city that is four square of equal height, of equal length, of equal width. That is 1,500 miles in its total distance of its width and of its breadth and of its length. I probably mixed all those measurements up, but you get the point. Now you ask Derek, how big is 1,500 miles? If you were to map out 1,500 miles and you were to start down at the tip of Florida, you would have to go all the way up to the very top of New York. 
You'd have to go all the way over into Montana and back down into Mexico to square out that entire square. Now, that would be a pretty big distance. Certainly, it, certainly it's much bigger than our state here in Indiana. But not only so is this great distance measured in its length and its width, but also we see its depth, that it is equally 1,500 miles in its height. Now, I don't know exactly how heaven is laid out, but if you were to take that total volume and you were to look up how many people could take residency in a city that big, I want you to know that over 197 trillion people could have a six-acre estate in that city. Did you get that? Over 197 trillion people could have a six-acre estate in that city. That's a pretty big place, isn't it? Now, there have been people that have done calculations on how many people they reckon have lived in the history of the world. They've come to a number that's about 106 or 108 billion, much smaller than 197 trillion. But what I'm here to tell you is that there's room for everybody When Jesus said that I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also, I believe He meant it. I believe when He said that in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, that He wouldn't have told us that He meant what He was saying there too. That there is room for every person in the city of God. How tremendous it will be when we get there. To look and to see of the splendors of a city like this one. Keep reading with me. Verse 18. It says, And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was of pure gold, like unto clear glass. Now, I, I want to make a statement real quick about this. Keep in mind here, John is trying to describe to us this city, and he is trying to use words that we can understand and that we can reference, but I want you to think about what he says here, that it's a gold that is so pure that it's likened to glass. You see, this is a type of purity, a type of preciousness that this city has been built with, that it surpasses anything any one of us has ever laid our eyes on. Think about the most precious jewel, the most precious ring, the most precious piece of jewelry you've ever seen in your life. And you look at it and you marvel at its beauty and marvel at its splendor. And it is far surpassed by the beauties of heaven. Isn't that wonderful? You know, sometimes we're here in the fall right now and currently we see all the beautiful splendors of the colors as they change on the leaves and things like that. But you know, before long what's going to happen... All those leaves are going to fall, and there's going to be dead leaves scattering the ground, and everything's going to be brown, and the limbs are going to be bare, and it's going to be winter here in the middle of America and Indiana. And it ain't going to be too lovely, <laughs> is it? Sorry, I don't mean to bring everybody down a little bit there. But the splendors of this city, not only are they extraordinary and beyond any comparison that we can make of our own eyes here, but they are lasting in their nature. They are splendors that are sufficient to last all of eternity. The foundations of the the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. Listen to us. He's going to go through 12 stones that make up the foundation of the city. He said the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manners of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. And the second 
uh, was sapphire, and the third chalcedony, and the fourth an emerald, and the fifth sardonyx, and the sixth sardius, and the seventh a chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, and the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every and yeah, every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, <laughs> for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Think about that. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, to that book of beginnings, and you read about the creation of the world and how God put the greater light to light the day and the lesser light to light the night, that we would have a manner that we could see here in this world. Yet we are told here that there would be no sun, neither a moon. Why? Because they are completely unnecessary. For the Son of God will be the light of that city. Can you imagine I don't know about you, but when I hear a place described like this, I can't help but want to go. <laughs> I want you to think about the greatest place anyone's ever recommended to you. The other night, Brother Gary was recommending to me a cruise. Talk about how wonderful it is to be able to go to these different places and see the, the, the beautiful scenes that you see as you go about on a boat to different places. And I'm sure it's a sight to behold. But I want you to know there is no place any eye has ever looked upon on this earth that compares to this one. This is the one that I recommend to you. I've seen some wonderful things, but I want you to know eye has not seen nor ear has, been, has heard of the splendors that await for us. Friend of mine today, if you are lost, I pray that you would see and that you would hear of what is being described to you of heaven and that it would place a longing in your heart that you would have a home assured for you in that place. And I'll get to that a little more here in a moment. Let's keep going in verse 24. So the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall no in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Sinner friend, that last verse to you should be heart-wrenching. Why? Because what it is saying is that there is no place for unbelievers in heaven. All that will be apart there will have the blood of the Lamb of God applied to their hearts where they stand as those that are redeemed. Heaven is a wonderful city as we see it described here in the 21st chapter of Revelation. But I want you to know that there are those that are not saved, that are not invited to go in to this place. Verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1. says, He showed me a pure river 
of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face. (laughs) Did you hear that? They shall see His face. No man has seen God at any time. Even Moses, as close as he walked with the Lord, was not privy to see the face of God. Instead, he was hid in the cleft of a rock, and God covered his his hand over that rock as he passed by, and he was only able to see his hindered parts. But one day, we will see God face to face, just as I look at you today. We will behold Him, and we'll behold His Son, the glory of that city, and we will dwell in perfect rest with Him for all eternity. Do you hear that? We will see the face of God. And His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's what heaven's going to look like. What's it going to smell like? I won't keep going. I could read to you all day of the scriptures that tell us a little bit about what awaits us in heaven. But I want you to think for a moment what we're told about our relationship with God here, about our prayers, about our obedience, what we read in the Old Testament of the different types of offering that had to be made and the incense that would be burned and how they would rise up to God as a sweet-smelling savor. You see, we see in the Scriptures how it's made mention of and, and if you think about for a moment what it must have been like, especially in the Old Testament and those offerings and those things and, and there's enough there that if you start allowing your mind to wander, you would begin to smell that and it wouldn't smell very favorable to us, would it? But we're told of the Lord that it would be a sweet savor. Now we're not told specifically of what heaven smells like, but I do stand to reason that seeing that there will be no sin there, neither death nor decay, and seeing that the obedience of God's people and the praise and the worship and the glory that they give to Him, He receives in a sweet-smelling favor, or savor rather, that it reasons to me that we will smell of the sweetness of the glory of God when we enter into that city. You might say, well, Derek, why is that such an important thing that you think about what heaven smells like? Don't you have better things to think about than what heaven smells like? First of all, I want you to know that there is hardly a greater thought that a man can have than to consider what awaits the child of God in heaven. And so if you've got time on your hands to let your mind wander, I recommend to you that you let it wonder about what awaits us in heaven. But not only so, I want you to think for a moment, as I did earlier, about what we connect smells to. And about how closely then those things have to us as they would uh, cause us to have changes in our attitudes and our behaviors. When my wife was getting ready to uh, deliver our, our oldest daughter, Lila, and she was nervous about what awaited her. She was reading up on all sorts of materials about how to prepare for the delivery room. And one of the things that she read about was that you should make it smell 
in a certain way that would be calming and relaxing. I told you about those smells earlier, didn't I? One of those smells that I connect to nowadays is lavender. When I smell lavender, I'm taken to a delivery room. Lavender is supposed to be a relaxing smell. It's a stressful smell for me. (laughs) But I want you to think about all of those things. About how those things become an essence of the place where you're at in the moment. (laughs) And this will be a place where we dwell and we live with God for every moment for the rest of eternity. I think we'll notice the smell of the place, don't you? And I think it's going to be tremendous. What will it sound like? Now we have read and certainly you have heard about the singing and of the uh, shouting and the praises and the worship that will be taking place in heaven. Now even this morning there are those gathered around the throne of God saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. We read in the book of Revelation, the 15th chapter of John's Revelation, verse 3, it says, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of nations. You go on and you read there, it will tell us something about that song that will be sung. That song that will be sung will be reserved not for the angels to sing, but for the redeemed. You see, there will be a sound of sweet singing there because it will be of one voice of all people that have ever been saved by the Lord God who have tasted and known of His redemption, who can join in a perfect harmony and in a perfect voice. Not one of them will be off key. I won't be off key in heaven. Which is just a tremendous thought to me. I can't wait for that to sing perfect praises to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But it will be a sound that will be so sweet to the ear. I was thinking about this this week as I was considering all what we will see and hear in heaven. And I don't know about you, but there's sometimes you walk into a loud place and there's a, that cacophony. Probably the biggest word I know. That, that loud noise that's so hard that you can't hardly isolate a specific sound. You ever been in those places where it's just such a loud thing you can't even hear yourself think? And I was thinking about heaven and about all the praises that will be offered there and the songs that will be sung to the glory of the Lord. Yet it won't be that cacophony. Yet it won't be that tumult that would be so loud that we wouldn't be able to think. For it will be a perfectly directed choir. A sound that is perfectly sweet. The melody will be so right and so perfect and the pitch just right that we will be there and it will engage every one of our hearts to sing. That we wouldn't be of an ear to criticize those around us that can't sing as well. But we'd be offering perfect praise and a perfect sound and a perfect noise before the throne of an almighty God. I've heard some wonderful singing in my day. I've been a part of congregations where it seems like parts are just being sung in such a perfect harmony and a perfect order that it almost makes you think you may have found heaven here on earth. Oh, the singing that will take place around the throne of God. We've covered some of the senses, haven't we? What it will look like, what it will smell like, what it will sound like. What will it taste like? There, there's a taste of heaven. I think there's going to be a taste in heaven. Didn't you hear what Jesus said when He was taking the Last Supper? 
when he instituted the Lord's Supper that we still observe today. He was taking the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, verse 29. And as he took the fruit of the vine, he said, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The best I can tell from Scriptures is that there will be eating and drinking in heaven. And it will be perfect. And it will be sweet. And we will have never had such good company around the table as we will have in heaven. One of my favorite things about eating a good meal isn't just the flavor that we get to take up and the food that we eat and how wonderful and delicious it is, but it's the fellowship that you have around the table, isn't it? I was down in Austin a couple of weeks ago and I went to Stubbs Barbecue and it was really good food, but I want you to know I sat there at a table by myself and I did not enjoy it in the ways that I've enjoyed far less satisfying meals and taste buds that I have when I'm gathered around my closest friends and family. I want you to think for a moment about how sweet heaven is going to taste. Y'all are saying, Derek, it's lunchtime. I don't know if I want to think about that right now. But the point being is that we will be so engaged in heaven that every aspect of what we are partaking, whatever, every aspect of what we see, of what we hear, of our smelling, of our tasting, it will be engaged in the glory and worship of the Lord. Some of you are thinking back to your elementary school classes, and you know that I'm leaving out one sense. One of those five senses. That last one is a sense of feeling. You guys remember that? A sense of feeling. We touch things here, and we are able to observe if things are hard or soft, if they are smooth or if they are rough. When we consider what heaven's going to feel like, I don't think we observe it in the way that we think about how we would reach out and feel things here. Best I can tell from what we read in the 21st chapter of Revelation, all those uh, uh, precious stones that we read about, they're going to be perfectly smooth for us to touch. Didn't you hear how pure they're going to be? So I reckon whatever we feel there is going to be pure and soft and gentle to the touch. But the feeling of heaven isn't going to be expressed in what we reach out and feel, but in the feeling that we have as we engage with the Lord. And so I began to try to write down the different feelings that would await for us in heaven. Here's some of what I came up with. Warmth. Have you ever stepped out into the sun when you're cold? And it hits you with a certain warmth. And you stand in it, and it is as though you are feeling the rays of the sun as they are hitting your skin. And it warms you. Can you imagine the warmth that enters into the heart of the saint of God when they find eternal rest in heaven? Peaceful. Surely if there's any feeling that we be encountering in heaven, it is a feeling of perfect peace that awaits for the rest of the souls of the children of God. Joyous. In fact, we read in the book of in the Scriptures of a joy that is unspeakable. Of a happiness and a lightness that awaits us as we feel the depths of the love of God. 
And I want you to realize that for a moment, the feeling of love that will embrace us in heaven. One of the most awfulest things that I consider sometimes is when you meet somebody, it's evident that they don't have any friends or they don't have any family and they are lacking that, that warmth of the embrace of love in their lives. I was joking with Brother Jeremy earlier. He was holding Ezra in his hands and Ezra just looked as comfortable as any baby or any body could possibly ever be. And I was joking about how wonderful that looked to see him like that. And for Ezra, yes, there was comfort, but more so there was love. And what greater love will we ever experience than we are meant in the embrace of the presence of God for all eternity. A feeling of serenity. Not just a peacefulness where we find there's no conflict, but a peacefulness in which we find that there is a complete rest where no longer are we worried about all the concerns and the affairs of this life, but we find for all the rest of eternity a complete rest and silence for our souls. An adoration. A feeling of adoration. You know, I have found that the feeling of love, it is it goes two ways. I love feeling loved. I love feeling my wife love me. I love feeling my children as they love me. I love feeling as you display your love towards me. But I also love the feeling of giving love and of showing my adoration towards others. Don't you? It compels us sometimes that we show a greater love to others and a greater love to each other. And how great then will be as we feel embraced by the love of God, will that compelling be as we would show our adoration towards Him? There would be a glorious feeling, a victorious feeling. But maybe more than all of that, there will be the feeling of being at home. (laughs) Can't you just imagine... You know, there's no greater feeling, I think, that I have ever felt in my life than the feeling of being at home. There's a comfort that we get when we go to our homes that we have a range where we have a free reign that we can kick up our shoes and let down our hair and we don't have to worry about what we're putting on for others or what others think about, but we are perfectly ourselves and at home. <laughs> I love going to some of your homes because you invite me in with that same welcoming feeling. I walk into the Browns' home. I feel like sometimes I walk around like I can just own the joint, like I live there. Why? Because they're so welcoming to me. I walk into some of your homes and I feel, I talked about this earlier at one point several years ago, I feel like I can walk up to the fridge and get whatever I want because you're so welcoming to me. Think about what it's going to feel like when we get home. (laughs) Where we're at home forever. (laughs) Completely as we are. (laughs) Completely ourselves. (laughs) And in the joy and presence of our closest friends and family for all of eternity, we'll have the feeling of home. Well, listen to this. I have went through, and we have 
described using all the senses that we have in the faculty of our minds here to describe what heaven's going to be like. But listen to what Paul said about it. He was quoting the prophet Isaiah when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. You might say, Derek, then I guess you wasted your time a little bit today, didn't you? Because try as we might, as great of an effort as the revelator John put into trying to describe to us what heaven's going to look like, even his greatest attempts will fall short of what awaits us in our home in heaven. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, neither has entered into the heart or mind of man what awaits for us that God himself has prepared. You know what the problem is with everything that has ever been built by man's hands is that it's very best it's imperfect. Why? Because it's built by imperfect people. So no matter how level you try to get something, no matter how square you try to get something, when you get down to it, it will have its imperfections because it is only as good as the person that has built it. Yet we are going to a home, into a city, into a place that has been built perfectly by the perfect God, by the one in whom there is no sin, there is nothing to defile it. Every stone is precious. Every stone is pure. Every brick has been laid just right. Every foundation is just square and just level. And every bit of it is perfect. And it's resting upon this that the chief corner of that city is Jesus Christ. And so we know then with certainty that everything has been aligned because it's been aligned based upon the perfect righteousness of the Son of God. No wonder then that Peter reckoned that it is the place where righteousness dwells. We have one final question then we need to wrestle with. We've considered what heaven will look like, what it will smell like, what it will sound like, what it will taste like, and how it will feel. But the last question then that we must deal with is for those that do not have their home assured in heaven, it is how, how can I go? The book of Galatians, fourth chapter, first verse. It says, Now I say, that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, listen to verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see, it is the redeemed who have the privilege of calling heaven home. Why? Because we are heirs of the Father. We are inheriting this place because of the work that our Father has done to prepare it for us. But it is exclusively, listen to me, 
Heaven is the exclusive home of the redeemed. If you have not been saved, you will not enter into it. But instead, you will enter into that place that John the Revelator talked about. We read about in that same 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. And so what accounts then for those that are privileged to go to heaven is that they have tasted of the Lord's redemption. And listen to me, sinner friend. If you are lost today, if you've never been saved, you are tied up in a bondage, in a slavery to your sins. Satan has so ensnared your heart by the inheritance of your earthly father that you have only no sin. There is no virtue about you. There is no righteousness about you. On your best day, sinner friend, you are a filthy sinner in the sight of the holy and perfect and righteous God. And seeing then that you have received this curse of sinfulness, it is necessary that there be some transaction made to purchase you out of slavery, to buy you out of that bondage. And that price, it has been paid. It has been paid by the blood of Jesus. He has given His life as a ransom for you to purchase you and to redeem you and to purchase you unto himself to give you that inheritance. So today, sinner friend, if you would receive a home in heaven, it will be because you come underneath the blood of Jesus Christ, where you receive the redemption of sin, you receive the forgiveness of sins, where you're purchased out of bondage and set free. You see, that song that will be sung in heaven, that song of Moses, it will be sung by the free, not by those that are ensnared in sin. So Brother Corey, give us a song. I want to give opportunity. I want to invite you that you can come and find the Redeemer. You see, I, I wish, oh how I wish, that I could give to you today a ticket that was good for a one-way flight to heaven. But I can't do that. Neither can anyone else around you do that. But what we can do is can point you to the one who gives that freedom. The one who gives the redemption. We can point you to that man, Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you today, sinner friend, if you are lost, if you've never been saved by God's grace, this righteousness that I speak of is so far from being understood in your heart, that peacefulness, that joy, you've never found it, you've never found the rest of your soul. I want to invite you today to come and seek on your knees in prayer, seeking after God and His redemption and His forgiveness. Let's stand and let's sing. Oh, heaven's a glorious place. Sinner friend, I want you to go. I can't wait to go, but I want you to go with me. Let's stay and let's see.